Let's go ahead and stand to our feet out of reverence for the reading of God's word. And let's hear these words tonight as we should in truth because they are God's words. As if God were to pick up the phone of heaven and ring your number tonight. I pray that you would hear that ring and see that this call is not a call that's going out broadly. It's not spam. It's not a telemarketer, but it's a God who knows you, who knows you by name, who knows the color of your eyes and place the pigment of your skin. A God who fashioned you and gifted you with talents and abilities as well as opportunities. But in order to fulfill those, those opportunities and purposes, the Lord must first do a work in you. And let's read about that work. Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 18. The writer of Hebrews says, pray for us. Pray for us, for we trust we have a good conscience in all things, willing to live honestly. But I beseech you the rather to do this, that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work, why should he make you perfect? To do his will. Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, I pray that you would help me now. In Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Last week I began a message which I had a feeling and indeed did turn into a series. And that series is entitled this, Hindering His Hand. I'm going to do my best not to belabor the points that I made last week, but for those who were not here or for those who have forgotten, I would like to refresh our memories on just two things first before we begin. The first thing is this, is that God does not have any desire to dictate the minutia of the movement of your fingers, the, the dictation of your lips, the work of your hands. But instead, he desires that the movement of your fingers, the dictation of your lips, the work of your hands, the things that you do come as a result of the work that God is doing in our hearts. Yes, he desires to, for us to be about his work, about his business, but he is not a controller of the robotic arms of your body, but instead desires to create in you the image of Christ and having that image be first and foremost predominant in your heart and life that then your hands by the work of the Holy Spirit will be busy about his work. That's why I come to this passage as we launch forth. Verse number 20, now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will. And how is that? Working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. That the work that God desires for us to do with our lives must, must 
flow out of work that God first does in our hearts. That's the thing we need to remember first and foremost. Second to it is this reality that our actions, specifically our responses, can hinder his hand. To emphasize this truth in case you are wondering how on earth we can hinder an omnipotent, almighty God who is eternal in the heavens. How do we have the ability to do that? I admit, sounds rather audacious. It's not because we have power over him. It is because, and I'll say this, where God desires to impose himself, God can and does impose himself. But we find many times in scripture all throughout where God chooses not to impose himself, but instead seeks to influence us and gives us the free will to resist that work. A couple verses Psalm 78, verse 41, yea, they that turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. What's that saying? They limited the work that God intended to be done. Matthew chapter 23, verse 37 through 39. You could read the whole thing if you like, but here is the gist of it. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the words of Jesus says this, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wing, and ye would not. In other words, they hindered the work that God desired to do in their life. Last week, I was honest with you that I, I don't have the time in this series nor the mental capacity to go through all of the things that we can do to hinder God's work. However, there are three things that I find in the book of Hebrews that I would like to point out. Last week, we pointed out the fact that when God God's chastening is rejected that we are hindering the work that God is desiring to do in our hearts. But this evening, I would like to turn our focus not to the chastening hand of God, but something entirely different. And I'd like for you to turn over to Hebrews chapter number 12, and we're going to read just two verses. Hebrews chapter number 12, I'll begin reading first in verse number 14 and continue to verse 15. Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 14 says this. It says, Following, follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. I would like to draw your attention to the fact that, yes, as we discussed last week, when we look at this reality that we can be hindering his hand, that yes, as we discussed last week, we hinder his hand when chastening is rejected, but we also hinder his hand, and this is the subject for this evening, when bitterness becomes rooted. When bitterness becomes rooted, there is a great warning in Scripture that the work that God desires to do in our hearts, which should result in the work that God desires to do with our lives, when we have bitterness rooted in our hearts, that the work that God intends to do does indeed become hindered. It is slowed down. Uh, there is a, a wall of resistance that we place against God when 
whenever we harbor bitterness in our own hearts? Do we not see the warning? First off, in verse number 14, it says, Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Would you listen to that phrase? Without which no man shall see the Lord. Now you may say, well, Pastor Jared, doesn't that statement come before this declaration and this warning about bitterness? And if you are to observe that, you're absolutely right. And I encourage you to search these, search the word to see whether these things be so. But would we not agree that the greatest impact that bitterness has in our hearts is whether or not we are at peace with man? And yet the urgency of verse number four seems to be placed on that opening statement, follow peace with all men. The example that's given in the following verses is that of Esau. And if we're not careful, we're going to miss this example. So let's look at it for just a moment. Verse number 15 says, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. Following after this, we don't see a period, but instead of that, a semicolon, a continuation of thought. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. For ye know how that afterward, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. There is so much content that could be said about these verses. I wanted to admit to you right now, I am not going to cover it all. But instead, I want to emphasize that which pertains directly to the effect of bitterness. When I look at bitterness in Esau's life, I draw my eyes to the close of verse number 17, and I am captivated by this phrase, that he was rejected. He was rejected, and then comes the phrase, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. Do we not believe that our God is a God of forgiveness? Do we not believe that our God is a God of restoration? Don't we believe the promise that is given that, if, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness? So what is this matter where it says that Esau found no place of repentance? Now, you are welcome to, uh, to examine this, even to disagree with me and to discuss this with me. Uh, this is not a place where I stand supreme over you and Lord over you. Don't we believe in the priesthood of the believer? But this is my, my understanding about this, is that Esau was looking for repentance. He was seeking it, but he could not find it, as if something was standing in the way. Now, many would say this, and I would agree with this, is that there seems to be sorrow that Esau lost the reward, but not sorrow over the sin itself. The sin of forfeiting that birthright to, to Jacob. You remember the story. Esau comes out of the woods. He's, he's famished. He's weak. He's meager. He's feeling faint as though he's going to lose his life. And he begs his little brother Jacob to provide a, a pottage, a stew, some type of food. And he trades his birthright for it. He takes the stew. 
Jacob takes the birthright. Fast forward to the deception of Jacob and Esau. You remember the story. You, uh, you remember those Sunday school lessons, how Jacob came in with the woolly arm <laughs> because his father's eyesight was, was dim. And Isaac felt and thought it was Esau and gave Jacob the blessing instead. It doesn't seem fair, does it? Neither of those cases seem fair. But when Esau came, he was not repentant that he was so flippant with his birthright. It seems that his tears were only because he was upset that he lost the reward. What would cause someone what would cause someone not to see the, the sin of their own error and blame everything on everyone else? What would cause someone, instead of being genuinely impacted and infected by the, the convicting power and the overthrowing power of God's Holy Spirit as truth comes into the situation and Esau, although many circumstances could be blamed, what if Esau were to accept responsibility for his own errors and beg God based on the truth of his own sin, his own flippancy about that promise. What if then, and perhaps then, he would have received the reward, but that was not the case. And what boundary was keeping him from accepting his own fault? I submit that it was bitterness. And that's why we find it in this context. That's why we find it irremovably linked to the warning. Instead, it is the example of what happens when we allow bitterness to be harbored in our heart. We hinder his hand when bitterness is rooted. Now, I'd like to give three problems. There are three matters concerning bitterness. The first one is this. Let's take a look at the wound of bitterness. The reality is that bitterness is a wound. Regardless of the reason for those in the room that might be bitter right now or might be bitter tomorrow, or that friend, that coworker that you know has such difficulty getting over the bitterness that is in their heart. I can almost assure you that if you've had any interaction or any personal experience with this, that bitterness has come as a result of an injury, of an injustice of a problem, of, a, of an infraction. In some cases, that, that injury is, is from someone that is so dear and so trusted. And that wound is, is a wound that has come from the, the blade of a knife that has been stabbed deeply in the back from someone that you thought would never betray you. Sometimes bitterness comes from a womb, not from a person, but you feel a, a, that, that God has been unjust concerning you. How could he allow that loss? How could he uh, allow such a, such a tragedy to come into your life and you'll shake your fist towards heaven and in rebellion against what we see as the nature and tender mercies of God, we blame God. And bitterness begins to grow. This is 
the wound of bitterness. The problem is that, that this wound of bitterness, sometimes the hurt is justifiable. And in fact, the response of hurt and, and agony and, and anger is not just justified, but sometimes, quite frankly, it's proper. I think of the anger that Joseph must have felt betrayed by his brothers, cast into this pit. If he was angry, if he was hurt, it was justified. I don't think God has commanded us to be mechanical robots who do not feel the emotions of life for it is God who gave us those emotions. Yes, there should be boundaries to them. There is a time and a limitation to those emotions. We should bring them under subjection of the spirit. They should never get outside of the, the bounds or the banks of the, of the river that they are intended to be in. Our love should be pure love. Our anger should be holy and righteous anger. Our, our discontentment should be discontentment because we want our relationship with the Lord to grow. But all of these human emotions are fitting and proper, even the feelings of hurt, of agony, of, of difficulty, of sorrow, and even of anger. But they must remain in the banks of the river that God has prescribed to us. And this is where proper healthy response to injury must be kept in check and not overflow and become a root, a seed of bitterness that grows. Amen. Would Jesus not have the right to feel wounded? Would Jesus not have the right to feel betrayed by Judas? I am on the verge of letting something out. I've been holding back for a little bit of study I've been doing on, on Judas and Jesus. But it's interesting to me that when Judas betrayed him with a kiss, one of Jesus' very next words were his friend. Could anyone, could anyone love Judas more than Jesus? No. His mother couldn't, the Sanhedrin couldn't, the Pharisees couldn't. It was Jesus. And I have, I have confidence that Jesus agonized for Judas just as he did the others and loved him. For God so loved the world. When Jesus was on the cross, he looks down with nail-pierced hands and nail-pierced feet with a crown that's been pressed upon his brow, looking through the streams of blood that are pouring down his ripped and torn face. And what does he say as he observes those very men that beat him and abused him? He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Oh, I can't pretend, however, that he did not have sorrow both for their physical bodies as well as for their eternal souls. Why else would he give this statement of compassion towards them? I believe that Jesus 
felt sorrow. Did you know that in Isaiah, the description of Jesus is this, is that he was acquainted with grief, acquainted with it. And he was a man of sorrows. And we think that those sorrows are just because of the physical infliction upon his body. No, no. It's because he's being betrayed by the ones that he's loved. It's because he's being led as a sheep before her shearers. And the shearers are the ones he's dying for. It's okay to have injury and sorrow and wound. You see, there is a wound that can lead to bitterness. And we have to be aware that almost every single time we are wounded, we can either cast ourselves upon his grace to sustain us or we run the risk of delving and plant, delving into the waters of bitterness, planting seeds of bitterness in our heart. Those are the two choices we have as believers and we have them every single time we feel injured, every time we feel trespassed, every time we are criticized, every time we're attacked, every time we're betrayed, every time that you think someone has, has injured you, and every time you are abused, you run the risk of either experiencing God's grace or experiencing the bitterness of the flesh. And if bitterness, it hinders God's hand. And that's why we must move from the wound of bitterness to the warning of bitterness. Look with me in verse number 15. The Bible says it like this. It says, uh, looking diligently. I love that word diligence. It, 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 it means this. It's a steady eagerness. It's like the eagerness of Christmas Eve without Christmas morning coming. Just, just I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait. I, I, I want to move forward. I want to move forward. And that is the idea of diligence. And this is the warning given to, given to all believers that we should be looking diligently with steady eagerness about this matter of wounds becoming burdens in, or becoming bitterness in our life. The verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. I've noticed this about this text in verse number 15 is that it does not say, lest any bitter root. Bitterness is not a description of what the root is like. Bitterness is a description of the root itself. The word bitterness in Greek here is rakira. It's, it, it means hatred. It means extreme enmity. It means grudge. It means, this is a little lofty, but it means rather an excessive degree or implacableness of passions and emotions. In other words, it's an emotion that overruns your senses. It overruns your normal peace. It overruns your normal thought processes. And for those who have experienced bitterness, you know what it's like to see the face of the person you're bitter against. And does it not heighten the rate of 
have your heart and your blood pressure. Uh, to overhear a conversation and hear that person's name that you are so bitter against and has been so hurtful to you in the past, it, it overruns your thoughts. And now all you can think about is that person with a certain disdain, uh, with a certain amount of, of enmity against them. And if you have experienced those things, that is the danger of bitterness. Now, I'm so clear to describe that because, listen carefully, if you're dealing with bitterness right now, you are the one that is least likely to listen to what I'm saying. Not because you don't agree with me, but because you think that maybe what you're dealing with is not bitterness. And see, that's what bitterness does. It affects the heart in such a way where our actions, our responses feel so justifiable. Our vengeance feels justifiable. Our anger, our wrath, our reactions feel justifiable. And we will say things like, yeah, maybe I shouldn't said it, but they deserved it. Yeah, I, I, I maybe shouldn't have done that, but... They had it coming. And those are the words of bitterness. Those are not the words of the Holy Spirit overwhelming and dwelling in your heart. And I know that I, I'm not trying to get yelling or loud or, or vicious with this. I, my heart's desire is to be as compassionate as I can. But I want to throw the red flag of warning because the subject at hand is hindering his hand. And when we allow this to exist in our our hearts, we are forbidding the thing we need the most, which is God's hand. Amen. That is the warning, the warning of bitterness. The warning of bitterness goes even farther, however, because when we look at bitterness, we don't just see its wound and its warning, but when we feel the warning of that bitterness coming up in our heart, we are in most danger because then comes into play the work of bitterness. See, here's the thing about bitterness. I have heard it described this way, that bitterness is like a cup of poison that you wish you could give to your enemy, but since you can't, you drink it yourself. And that poison goes to work. It goes to work in your mind and in your heart. The very places that Hebrews chapter number 13 says that God wants to work in our heart and in our mind. And it begins to affect us. It begins to harden us. And it begins to come out not just in our thoughts and in our heart. But then it begins to make itself manifest in our works, the work of our hands, and in the words of our lips. And I want you to notice this so very carefully as we examine the work of bitterness. Look with me at verse number 15. I want you to see what is described here as being a work of bitterness that sometimes takes place in our life when we allow it. Verse 15, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up, first off, trouble you. You see, bitterness is just trouble to you. 
It's trouble inside your mind. It's trouble inside your heart. And bitterness, when it troubles you, pulls you away from the grace of God. Now, we'll get to more of this here in just a moment. But I want you to either write this down or remember this if you can. But the target of bitterness, if we were to look at Satan as he draws his bow and arrow and knocks the arrow of bitterness in his bow and releases it, Where is his target? It seems interesting to me that there is a consistency in Scripture that the target of Satan's attack using bitterness is almost always grace. Almost always when you see the work of bitterness, you will see an attack on grace. Sometimes that's the grace that you are supposed to be experiencing. And sometimes, as we'll see in a moment, it's the grace that others are supposed to be experiencing that you are hindering. That's why we see in this passage, verse number 15, looking diligently lest any man fail of the grace of God. Shortly after that, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, trouble you, so it's the grace that you experience. You know what a bitter person needs? They need to be able to experience the grace of God. You know how I told you that bitterness is often caused by a wound? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says about his wounds in 2 Corinthians 12. And he said unto me, this is the Lord speaking to the Lord, to the Lord speaking to the Lord, which he does sometimes, <laughs> and we get to hear it, but this is the Lord speaking to the Apostle Paul. Listen carefully. He says, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect, if you know it, say it with me, is made perfect in weakness. How does that weakness get there? Now, what we could say is, oh, well, he's talking about the thorn in the flesh. You know, that was something that was just kind of part of Paul's flesh. That wasn't a a wound that someone put there. That wasn't an incident which hurt Paul's heart. Well, listen. Sorry, everybody. (laughs) Ah, Maybe that beard will come in, too. Uh, Some of you will get that later. Uh, Most gladly, therefore. Okay, he says, my grace is sufficient for thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. How did that weakness get there? Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. See, well, there's, the, there's that natural infirmity that he had from birth. Listen, that the power of, of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in my infirmities, in my reproaches, in my necessities. Listen to this now. In my persecutions, in my distresses, for Christ's sake. You know, when the Apostle Paul is coming to the Lord about his persecutions, about his distresses, about the things that other people have done to him, Paul's immediate, or the Lord's immediate response, remember how I told you, bitterness and grace, they are connected. What does the Lord emphasize? Grace. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul, I know that those persecutions are going to keep coming. And I know things that you don't, Paul. One day those persecutions are going to take your life. Don't get bitter about it. It's just kind of the situation you're in. Just enjoy the fact that my grace is greater. My grace is greater than your persecution. My grace can heal your wound. 
My grace is sufficient to overcome any tragedy. My grace can heal any heart. My grace will release the bondage that you're under from your past. Hey, my grace is able. It's sufficient. That's what Jesus is saying to Paul. Whenever you see the threat of a wound to cause bitterness, the target is always grace. And Paul could have said, yes, I'm going to go after my persecutors. I'm going to destroy them. I'm going to do to them what they did to me. I'm going to drag them out. I'm going to stone them. I'm going to try to kill their family. I'm going to try to kill their friends. That could have been Paul's response. But the enemy, the detractor, it would have been grace. He would have missed out on God's grace. He would have missed out on what God wanted to do in his life. And he would have been hindering God's hand. For God's hand is hindered when bitterness is rooted. But you know what? Grace is not always the target just in our lives. It's also the target in the lives of others. We're looking back at verse number 15, looking diligently lest any man fail the grace of God, lest any, bit of, bit, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you. Now, everyone, as careful as you can, let's look with our eyes what the Word of God says. And thereby many be defiled. It doesn't just impact the grace that you can experience, but bitterness when that root grows in your heart will affect the ministry of grace to others. Could you look with me just quickly at Ephesians chapter 4 for a moment? I just want to show you one instance of this, and then we're going to get to the solution to all this. Remember how I told you bitterness and grace, there's a great correlation there. A great correlation between bitterness and grace. And listen to this in verse number 29 of Ephesians chapter number 4. Verse 29 of Ephesians chapter 4. And the Bible says, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. Just as a little side note. When you're bitter, corrupt communication is about the only thing that comes out. And I don't say that to be flippant or to be hurtful towards you. I just know that out of the abundance of the heart... The mouth speaketh. And when there is a root of bitterness in that heart, you should only expect for the corruption of that to come out of your mouth. And it may come out in a very camouflaged way. It may be mingled with truth and guile. It, it may be mingled with, uh, with, error, with, with elements of sincerity and maliciousness, as is often the case. Uh, but when it comes out, there will be a corruption. It's almost like the Lord knew we were going to try to be sly about it and present something pure and holy, but because of bitterness, we're completely incapable, and there'd be a little bit of rottenness on the backside of that apple that you're trying to present as something that is good. So we continue on. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good to the use of edifying, listen carefully, that it may minister, here it is, grace unto the hearers. Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed under the day of redemption. Look at the next three words. Let all bitterness, let all bitterness and wrath 
and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. The words of Hebrews chapter 12 echo in my ears and many be defiled. And I wonder how many I wonder how many church members over the years have been discouraged because a root of bitterness allowed corrupt communication. I've heard the phrase so many times that, and it's true, that hurt people hurt people. The wound that causes bitterness and robs the and 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 robs the 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 wounded from experiencing grace is the same wound that grows in bitterness and robs those around them from experiencing that same grace. And church, it may not be you that's struggling with this, but then again, it may be. And can we have a sensitivity of heart to dig down to that root? And instead of saying, oh, that's so-and-so. Oh, he's, I, I wish so-and-so. I better send them a link to this live stream. Now, maybe it's, maybe it's us that are here that are in need of this. So what do we do about it? Well, while we're here in Ephesians, let's go ahead and just look here. Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. Why does it put that there? Why does it put that there? Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. It seems like oftentimes whenever we talk about grieving the Holy Spirit of God, we're really talking about, Brother Taylor, you've probably counseled people in this way, and I have too, and I don't think there's anything wrong with this, but when we live a life of sin, we're grieving the Holy Spirit of God that dwells in us. Don't we counsel people that way? We're always talking about, oh yes, when a, when a believer's involved in, in pornography or, or in, in jealousy or, or they're out committing adultery, they're, they're grieving the Holy Spirit of God. And that's absolutely true. But the context of this is when we fail to minister the grace of God like we should. And it's like God's hands wants so much to do a work, not just in our hearts, but he wants to use us to a work of grace in the hearts of those that are all around us. And when bitterness rolls in, it, and I hate to say it this way, but it's true, it hinders the work that God's hands desire to do in our hearts and in the hearts of those around us. Oh, may we have a sensitivity to how important this is. So here's a solution. How about we let the Holy Spirit do the work in our hearts first? And this is the work that needs done. It's a merciful work. It's a merciful work of grace reminding ourselves that the Lord is at hand. I love this. In Psalm chapter number 34, the Bible says this, the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart. 
And if you are experiencing and have been battling bitterness tonight, I'll tell you, the Lord has not left you. He might feel so far away from you because there has been some real grieving of his Holy Spirit, but he is nigh. He is at hand. He is present. He is waiting to do that work. For the Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. The very next verse in Psalm 34, verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Those wounds will come, but the Lord delivereth delivereth him out of them all. The Lord's at hand, okay? Now listen, but this is the work the Lord wants to do. It's a work of forgiveness. Ephesians chapter four, here we are. Still with our Bibles open, verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And here is the remedy. And be ye kind one to another. Tenderhearted. Finding those places where our hearts have become so hardened and allowing the Holy Spirit to soften them that we would be moved with compassion the way that God's moved with compassion. And then here it is. And even as God for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. That's the way that we are to be forgiving one another. This, I could title this way, is the weeding of bitterness. So I have landscaping in front of my house that is much better now than it used to be. <laughs> much better. Um, some of you who had visited um, a few years ago, you would have come by and seen like weeds and grass coming up through the mulch, these bushes that are like halfway dead and halfway alive. And the reason they're halfway dead, I'll go ahead and admit it before you now, um, it's because I got that ground clear stuff and instead of going down and like weeding all the weeds, it's like, I'm just spraying this. You know, I coughed for like three days after that. I'm pretty sure I poisoned myself. But if I'm going down, they're coming with me. And I was just kill all those weeds. I killed half the bush in the process. Didn't even care. It's a cost of doing business. Everything died. It turned brown and yellow. And I thought, yes, they ain't coming back. And then sure enough, little green sprouts of wicked weeds coming up. baby, you didn't get me. I'm sorry, my mind is childish. You know what I discovered? The only way to stop those things from coming back is to get the root out. Had to weed that place. I couldn't just kill it all which is what bitterness attempts to do. I had to go with great care and diligence. And I had to grab, grab every individual weed. They were the annoying kind that you couldn't just grab up here and yank all of it out. They just break off. I had to take my poor delicate little fingers and shove them down in the soil and dig around And I would push my fingers. And I hated this because so many of those weeds had thorns. And it's like, here I am trying to get this weed out. And it hurts. I don't like this. Where's the blowtorch again? But if I would go one by one, every now and then I'd put it, and then finally put it on a glove. And I'd pick those things out. 
It helped. It got him out. But can I tell you the truth? Every now and then, one of those ugly little buggers comes back. And I've learned, both in my limited landscaping experience and in life, that if you've had bitterness show up once, it has a tendency sometimes to come back again. And you have to be so careful when it does come back to grab it quick when that root is small and pull it out. And the way that Scripture prescribes that we do that is through forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness has some benefits to those that you're forgiving, but the greatest benefactor of forgiveness is the one that is giving it. So you don't have to live in bitterness anymore. So the word of God, so the hands of God are not hindered in your life anymore. Forgiving one another. So well, they don't deserve it. They probably don't. Did the Roman soldiers deserve it? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. They might not deserve it. Well, they don't realize how bad they hurt me. They hurt me not just once, but over many years. And that may be true, but don't we sin against him over and over and over and over. And yet he is our example, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. And I love the way that it depicts those two persons of the Trinity, as if God is forgiving you, even not for God's sake, but for Christ's sake. Because he died for you. Because he did a work for us. And here we are forgiving others because he did a work for them too. Oh, and how often do we do this? Matthew 18. When Peter came to him, he thought he was awfully holy. Should I forgive him seven times or till seven times? And Jesus answered and saith unto him, I say unto thee, until seven times, um, until seven times, but until 70 times seven. No, that doesn't mean 490 times. That means every single time. Not because they deserve forgiveness, but for Christ's sake, we forgive them. Because Christ desires to do a work of grace in our hearts and in the hearts of those around us. This matter of business, this matter of bitterness, we don't talk about enough. I would say if we're honest, some of us have some roots that have grown. Maybe those are just small roots right now, but nonetheless, they're there and they've got to be dealt with by mercy and forgiveness. That some, perhaps, roots have grown strong and tall like a mighty oak tree. And now acorns have already fallen and roots of bitterness because of this initial incident have all grown. And they all need to be dealt with. Why? Because if not, we'll be hindering the work of his hand.